welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Dori Gonzalez Acevedo. She's the co-founder and CEO of Priscilla RX as well as the host of both the Software Quality Today and Women Leading Validation podcast. She has over 20 years experience in pharma industry specializing in regulatory compliance strategy and computer systems validation. Hi, Dori. Welcome to Woman to Woman podcast. We are so excited to have you with us here today. Thank you, Divya. I am too. I'm really, I've uh, been looking forward to spending some time with you today. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. So you have your own podcast, Womanly, um, and we'll talk about it in a bit, but uh, I don't get a lot of guests who have their own podcast. So it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's humbling. I'm like, okay, I better do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? We're all new at this. So it's a matter of, you know, just practice. Practice, practice, practice. For our listeners, let's start with what you do today. And you had actually mentioned how your first, very first job really brought you where you are today. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about that. I started off as an R&D chemist. I was, my, my undergraduate degree is in biochemistry and my graduate work is in chemistry. And given um, some life circumstances, a failed starter marriage, I jumped right into industry um, right away. and my first job was developing active pharmaceutical ingredients from the lab, the bench, to manufacturing scale sizes, metric tons. Um, and that really you know, formed the foundation of all of what I learned and brought me to where I am today. Um, but in that first job, it was really taking some you know, textbook things, chemical reactions that I did in the labs and I developed and having to tweak that in such precision, right? In order to get to a manufacturing scale really taught me almost everything that I really needed to know about life, I think. Like everything matters, experimenting is good, right? Um, There is no such thing as true failure, right? It's just an experiment. And that mindset and the mentors, some of the mentors that I had during that time kind of set the stage for the rest of my career. I did that um, in the beginning of my career and I moved into some novel uh, drug manufacturing, but, but really then took those basic principles into where I, I carve out my niche in computer software validation today. Um, so when I started, computer system validation wasn't really a thing, right? Um, Part 11 just was published in 1997 and it was unknown to the industry. Like, what did this thing mean? And we had to make it up as we went along in order to get drug approval. So as we had more technologies in in the manufacturing space, um, having to document that, having to document the process validation, the cleaning validation, um, the methods and analytical, like all of those things had to be done from scratch and like figured out, okay, so what do you do with this? And how does it translate to data? And what data do you have to capture? What do you have to hold? Walking through the original um, six pre-approval approvals that I got, very, very consciously aware of the site of my office, um, and my office mate would would concur the amount of boxes of paper documents that I had in order to prove what we developed and how we manufactured it was of a quality that was worthwhile putting on the market. So that really kind of sticks with me today and is part of the journey. When I moved into consulting in this particular space, I've always been kind of um, you know, a corp to corp or a consultant in these spaces. And I really fell in love with entrepreneurial 
lifestyle, um, building business, building um, client relationships, the customer, you know, kind of experience and what do they need and how, like, what are they really asking for? All those business process um, conversations also, but more to the root of what is the system that we're building, right? Like, so how are the, all those pieces put together? So this last year I launched um, or rebranded and relaunched my uh, consulting firm, um, Percelorex, um, and I'm CEO there now today and building a company that really values the ability to rethink things, right? So not taking what we've always done at face value, but re-examining that, being willing to open it up again, figuring out collectively with our our sponsors and our partners, like what works, what doesn't work, better, efficient, more you know, business processes through technologies. This actually brings two questions to the mind right away. First, why chemistry? Like, why did you want to get into chemistry? So who were those influences uh, maybe at high school level that really inspired you to go that direction? And the second part of the question I would have is from being a bench scientist manufacturing API for drugs, to getting into systems validation, it's it's a little bit of a pivot. So clearly pivot. at some point you decided this was where you needed to be. So when did that happen? Yeah, I pivoted a lot in my career. So I think uh, let's go back to your first question. So um, why chemistry? So I, you know, my dream was to be a doctor. That was my original dream. And um, numbers and science always came naturally to me writing and other things wasn't really interesting you know that was a pretty very early on conscious i think decision for me to to do some sort of science um given life circumstances i didn't end up going to med school but i i finished with all of my my chemistry work and in my undergrad i had a fantastic undergrad uh, female professor that really took me under her wing and helped and guide my career path. Um, I, I was an undergrad research assistant um, and teaching assistant as an undergrad, got an NSF fellowship um, in my, between my junior and senior year at University of um, Maryland at College Park with one of her mentors and colleagues, um, uh, through an Exxon uh, fellowship. And that was in very, very impactful to me. Um, the way that um, I was able to cultivate those mentor relationships through my undergrad. Um, and then when I moved into grad school, I chose to go to Bryn Mawr College, which is a female undergrad university um, at the time and probably still is, I don't know the statistics, but you know, the graduate program was the most heavily women-led professor program in the country at the time. And um, it was just a natural fit for me to blend and start to not just my technical career, but my leadership career, um, I think, now looking back at it, right? Yeah, I, you know, I had a, a rough time in grad school. Um, I, I got divorced at an early age and set me off in, um, in a spiral at, at some point, I had to take a little bit of a break, I got back in, started an industry and through the course of fits and starts, um, also just needed to, to redirect at some point in time. Um, there was a point where I, I really needed a break. I was over what we would probably call burnt out and burnout kind of now. Um, I operate at a very good um, hypomanic state and bipolar. So I, I operate at a very high intensity sort of um, pace. Um, and if I don't maintain that, it 
kind of goes off on one direction or the other. So for me, um, it's really being very aware of my cycles and what that looks like. And so in my professional space, I, I had, I've taken some step backs and, or pivots, right. To always been in alignment with my passions, right. And what my values are. And so mid two thousands, I, um, started my pharmaceutical marketing MBA and then moved into, um, my life coaching, uh, practice. And I, and I started getting trained in life coaching and executive coaching at the time. And I actually met my second husband, um, during that process. And, um, and we launched a, a series of companies, um, one of which was, um, the one year exit plan to help folks be able to do transitions between government and civilian life in the DC area or any other major transitions, right? It doesn't not necessarily government to civilian, but those major life trends, like how to, how to navigate doing the pivoting, right? And this was in the mid 2000s when we were doing this. And now it's kind of like a thing right now to, to get coaching on how to do pivots. Um, so I did that. I was, I was, I've been a trained doula, um, deliver babies and help, um, moms, um, after birth and fertility coaching, as well as I've went through my struggles of infertility over the years. So for me, that doctoring that I kind of wanted to do, I kind of have kind of done it, you know, in different ways throughout my career. And I think even today I do a lot of coaching and mentoring and quality mentoring, even in my, my niche space, um, because that's a value that I hold true to me, right. Is how to help one another, you know, dissect and then reinvent or, you know, put back together. What meaning is there for everybody? It wouldn't have been easy, right? Like when you are almost established in one field and then you decide, and you've done incredibly amazing things along the way, which is extremely interesting for all of us because nothing is like very closely related, right? These are very intense, separate kind of things. So just curious, while you were trying to shift into something new, I'm sure you had resistance. I'm sure they were naysayers. There were people who didn't believe in you, but you kept going. So what were some of the things that really helped you get through those phases whenever you re-pivoted mm. in your career in life? I actually think I'm probably the biggest obstacle in some of that versus others around me. Um, as you were saying that, I was trying to think of concretely, like anyone that never said no, like Dory, what are you crazy for doing that? Um, I think that there was a couple of years ago, I, I uh, also taught at John Hopkins Center for Talented Youth for the summer, and I taught inventions to a bunch of 10 year olds. And um, it was the most invigorating thing that I ever did because it really kind of proved to myself, right? Like it, the content doesn't matter. It's, it's this learning process. It's, cultivating learners, something that I think that our generation really needs to focus on, right? Like, like how to learn, like, and so it could be, so I've done that. I've taught, you know, sexual harassment training. I've taught, you know, DEI stuff. Like there is this thirst of knowledge inside of me that comes with a contagious sort of uh, vigor that inspires people. And I think that's what also makes a great leader, right? Is really being true to that and following through and, and, and pulling that thread 
of excitement and leadership. I was actually literally just talking to a guy on the plane this morning as I was flying into Dallas about leadership styles. And um, he's a CRO and I'm a CEO and we're talking and I was like, it was very interesting because not everyone, you know, really thinks about it. The people are the heart of what is what that we have, right? Um, doesn't matter how good of a system or things that we have, it's the people and what we do to take care of them and lead them. Absolutely. My kids did CTY programs and they were amazing. Some amazing courses, you know, that you don't find in other schools and yeah. uh, really, really great instructors. So great to hear you were one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So now that you've seen so many people you have coached, you as a leader have seen a lot of people around you. What do you think some of the typical leadership skills were before and how do you think they have changed over time? Because in the last two, three years, a lot of things have changed post-COVID. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if you can just talk a little bit about what it was before and according to you, what has changed and what it is today to be a successful leader, what, what do you need to be? Yeah, so I think for me, even through my COVID transformation, right, is really coming to, I was very um, open publicly in my private life about who I am, where I've come from, and all the things that I've overcome in my life. But that was kind of separate from my professional life. And in COVID, for me, it was, there's no choice, but they have to be in sync. Like, I can't do one without the other. And, and I think that that's really true for everyone, right? Is that, when we start segregating things and, and say, this is, it's not that I don't show up different. I do show up differently, but I'm bringing all of my authentic self now than I was three years ago. And I think that is a direct relationship to the COVID sort of impacts or lasting effects or changes. The good things I think that have happened from COVID in leadership. I think we need to be more willing and willing to understand the complexities of humans and the nuanced conversations that that entails and being uncomfortable in, in conversation. Because if we can't have a nuanced conversation, we can't get to some new understanding together. And so I think that that's, for me, some of the big lessons in leadership that's come out of this. You mentioned authentic self, and I think that's so important. So let's drill down a little bit on that. You have a background of uh, being a Native American. Being authentic, what does it really mean for you, given you know everything you have done, given your background and whatever else you have dealt with over the years? That's a great question, and thanks for asking, because it's one that I, um, I continually ponder. Um, so for me, not only being Native American, I was also adopted as part of that story um, into a white family. Struggled with identity all my life, right? I was called a little brown baby in the white neighborhood and um, not knowing any of what that meant back then, but knowing what that means now and trying to sort through that, right? Um, I'm not sure if I was sharing with you or someone else recently, you know, like I often have nurses ask me, oh, you have such a beautiful tan. Right. And um, still to this day, like literally three weeks ago, a, a nurse asked, said that to me. And, and, and I, I don't, I, I respond to that now. And I say, you know, that's really not okay uh, that, that you made an assumption. <laughs> right. Um, and this is who I am. And this is the color of my skin. And just to know that, that some of those statements are land, not in a very nice way. Years ago, I wouldn't have been able to to take that on. I would have just absorbed it, 
right? Masked over, yeah, I pass for white all day. I, and I do, and, and, and I acknowledge that. And it's not that literally black and white. <laughs> so now looking back, would you do anything different in life? That's a hard one. So I have no regrets. My path is not a pretty one. <laughs> um, and I've learned from each and every one of them. I think the biggest thing that I would continue and I continue to struggle and work through is, is um, grace for myself that I often state I'm a recovering perfectionist and that is a work in progress <laughs> um, uh, all the time um, because part of, part of my story, right, is that I needed to be a certain way. I needed to meet certain expectations I need in order to be loved and accepted in the roles in which that I fit. Part of that journey for me is giving up that illusion that I will somehow be this perfect thing. So if you had to pick a failure, like what, what do you think was your biggest failure and what do you, do you learn from it? You're really going deep, huh? One of my biggest failures, I have a lot of failures. And I think I also, part of a mindset change for me is that I seek to fail more regularly and acknowledge those regular failures such that then the, the successes and the failures are not that elated you know, on a, a roller coaster. I think for me, part of my personal biggest failure is not um, acknowledging and sharing uh, sooner in life my my struggles with mental illness. Yeah, I think the shame that has come from that um, has prevented you know prevented me earlier, and and those were failures of mine as a my part of my character flaw um, uh, to not take on that shame earlier in my life. But do you think it's more to do with the fact that now it's okay to talk about it? Everybody talks about it. There mm. was a stigma, I think a few years ago, there was mm. nobody who wanted to talk about it because right. you know, professionally there were repercussions. Now yeah. it's very different. Like you open LinkedIn, you know, every third post is somebody talking yeah. about it. And it's great because people need to talk about it. So it becomes normal normal yeah right yeah i think you're right i think that there's the, the stigma on a lot of different things right my recovery in alcohol and sex addiction i mean a lot of these things are taboo topics right that have been taboo for so long that has hold us all back from being able to be that true authentic self right that shame comes in variety and big and small it doesn't have to be the big T traumas that we talk about or the big, you know, illnesses, it, it, shame really, really gets in the way of a lot. And, and that is a social construct to your point, right? That now that we're able to talk about things more with brave folks leading the way to making that conversation more regular. And I like that the regularity of it, right? And so, you know, as I lead my team, I'm open with my team about those things. What do you need? This is what I need right? What do you need, right? And um, in order to be and be able to come to the table in an authentic way, not pull those, those shame buckets off the wall, right? And hide behind them because they're, they're, as soon as you start doing that, it's really, really hard to stop. And, and I think it's not just women, even men have stigma around a few things, but mm -hmm. I feel we have stigma around a lot of different things. Right. And they're misunderstood or they're, or they're, um, they're co coded in um, roles, right? Um, you know, a woman should look like this, or a mother should look like this, or an employee should look like this, right? I think that's part of, you know, glass ceiling, you know, barriers, right? So the gentleman that I was talking to on the, on the plane, right, he, he noticed in one company he was recently at, it, one day he's like, 
what are we doing? The entire board is all white men. And, and he challenged the board to, we got to do something about that. That is going against his stereotypical male norm, right? To raise that amongst a bunch of his colleagues and, you know, similar folks to, to buck outside the system. That takes a lot of guts to do. And it's the right thing to do, right? Because until we get more voices at the table and a diversity, real, true sense all across the board, we are not going to solve these big problems that we have in the world, right? Like, um, and I think that was also another gift of COVID in that it shed light on that. All economical, you know, across the whole entire world was, was affected. Now that at least there's a taste of discomfort for even the most privileged. Over the years, have you seen certain behaviors from women that you think don't help us at all and that we should be getting rid of and maybe developing some new skill sets or a mind shift, you mm -hmm. know, on how we look at things? Yeah, so um, this is something I, I did a, a, a group uh, meeting about a couple of weeks ago around the power of saying no, right? Um, learning how to say that it doesn't have to be an outright aggressive no, but there's still a no in there. Again, another conversation, part of my conversation with this guy was like, so if he was telling me how he came into the meeting and he laid it all down and this is how you, you we're going to deliver this contract and this, 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 and this, and this is how you should get it done. And I said, I love that for you. And if I were to go do that, what do you think would happen? And he's like, well, they would have called you a bitch. And I'm like, yes. So wherein lies the difference, right, of how women have to do play the game, right, in a way in which we can get our message across that is contorting in some ways. And some women will say that that's a contortion of who we are. But at the same time, it's also being very aware of the social settings in order to, to move the whole movement forward, right? So I think that there's, um, I think there's some change in that and how from a women to women perspective and how we're even, I even talk with some of my mentors and my mentees too, like it's, it's not just a black and white thing anymore, right? I think it's a way of leaning in and leaning in and trying a different lean in, or maybe that wasn't the right person to lean into. And also from a women's perspective, I think women are much, much more receptive to women, to women help today than maybe 10 years ago. So true, so true. And and I think you had you made a great point. You know, sometimes to move forward, you have to make a few concessions. It's not an on and off switch that today this is acceptable, yesterday it wasn't. It's it's a process. Yep. And you have to respect the process. And I think having that emotional intelligence, understanding what else is happening around us and taking a step back from time to time is okay. You know, it's, it's okay to lose a, lose a battle to win the war. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a give and take. It's a dialectical conversation, right? It's, it's, you can have both parts and hold space for both ends of the spectrum at the same time in a balancing sort of give and take pull way. It's a yin and yang. It's not. And that requires a different skill set to be able to have conversations in a slower way, right? In a more like all feeling way, right? Which is a stretch for women in business to do right? To, to put all that out there in a business context, it's a stretch for men to do because then they have to actually feel and do that too, right? Um, so it's pushing both, I think, from a gender perspective, pushing both sides to lean in in a different way. We need allies, even within men. 
right? And that's so important. We can't just do it by ourselves, right? Especially to start a change in how people perceive women, especially men, you need advocates on that side who are actually making those changes or having those conversations with their peers. So for you, what has networking been and how have you really worked and developed these allies or sponsors um, across your career? That's great. I think it's, it's changed for me in the last several years um, in a much more, need I say, actually selfish way. Um, and that's from one of my current um, sponsors and, and help because I think historically I'm a giver and I give a lot. And I think that's also a, a female characteristic um, in general, because some generalizations. When I look for mentors now, right, and how and allies in this space, like need to be really articulate about what help I need, right? Or what's not helpful. I think for me, it would like being outright, like just taking my side and, you know, going off and defending me is not helpful to me. That might be helpful to other people, but that's not helpful to me. What's helpful to me is a brainstorming session to get a bunch of thoughts, good and bad, all over the place, out of my head to be able to bring it down to a consumable level of what is the real message that I need to get out. So that's what it looks like for me. And not everyone can handle. So for men, the allies that I try to lean into really need to hold the psychological space for me to be able to do that dumping, emotional and mental angst as part of my process. And I, now that I know that that's part of my process, that's what I can ask for, right? Um, before then, I didn't know what... I needed. So I think for me, as I've gotten older and more just aware and self-aware of who I am in the world and where I show up and what, what some of my triggers are too, frankly, right. Um, you know, prepping for an all male meeting, I do a lot of work two to three weeks before that meeting. It's it, I, I know it's coming and I figure out who do I need to talk to and plan to in order to have some strategies in and accessible in order to go into those meetings before I would never have done that. And so that's a big change for me. I would have done that by myself or get super anxious and talk about with my husband, but he's not really helpful because he doesn't really understand business, right? Like all those sorts of things. I would have done non-helpful things, not to move me forward, but now leaning into folks that I think that can support the psychological safety, which I hope to be able to create for the folks that I lead. So now let's talk a little bit about your podcast, Womanly. So what is this podcast about? How can people listen to it and get access to it? <laughs> So Women Lead Validation is a joint sponsored initiative that I started with Connects, uh, the Knowledge Exchange Network. Um, and, you know, we have developed a, a women leading validation group within the sector and, and niche area that we work in. And because we really noticed that there was not a, a mechanism to be able to have these safe spaces for women to be able to figure out um, a lot of what we've been talking about, like all their ideas that they have, formulate them in a safe space so that they can present them to their management, to their bosses, to their teams, even uh, down, uh, depending on where they're at in their career, a safe space to be able to do that. Um, the podcast itself, uh, wanting to highlight folks across um, the spectrum and validation to be able to just, you know, showcase who they are and, and the most of us really don't have that kind of singular path. I think that that's also kind of the demystifying or myth-busting um, thing, right? Like most 
um, again, generalizations, men have a singular path. They know where they want to go. They have these goals and objectives, right? And, and it's also kind of expected as kind of the male sort of way of being. And the women uh, that I know, we're very like all over, you know, Candyland, you know, journey um, through life. We've choose to have kids or not have kids or adopt kids or wait to have kids, right? And all of that happens in some form or fashion, right? Um, these are things that men don't really worry about on a regular basis. How does that impact, you know, starting and stopping careers, being able to go after a further education if, if you've done, if you started kids early, right? Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting to me to see uh, women leading validation and, and some leaders in that space and what challenges that they've had and where they've come on their journey. Um, we hope to have some younger folks. So we kind of separated into three groups, right? Like the early career, just starting the mid-career woman and then the later career, kind of the journey there. And so we're, we're going to have some younger women on and, and see what the challenges are today, because I, I'm, I'm very curious, you know, has anything changed in the last 25 years? Um, I think some has, but not maybe as much as we think. This was great conversation, Dory. Learned so much. Um, your incredible journey. <laughs> Amazing. So any final comments or thoughts for our listeners? Um, no, I really appreciate it. Thanks for um, taking the time. And what you're doing, Divya, is just like super important. And I, and I love that you have passion for it. And the amount of work that you're doing to reach out to folks um, and get the message out for everybody is, is awesome. So I really appreciate that today. Thank you so much.